stay hungry, stay foolish. Before I launch into part three of this wonderful episode, I want to thank our sponsor Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products, empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check them out at hellozai.com. For those of you who have been joining us for this magnificent series with Shamin Prashantham, you will know that today's book is about the way in which large corporations can be entrepreneurial by partnering with startups. Specifically, it is about the key principles and practices that have been distilled from the entrepreneurial actions of managers who help their corporations engage with startups. As our audience knows well by now, opening an innovation lab here and there and organizing a hackathon now and again does not make an organization innovative. This is about substantive programmatic interventions that could ultimately underpin a more fundamental change of the organization as a whole, becoming more entrepreneurial. This book tackles corporate startup partnering in three parts, the why, the how and the where. In part one of this series, our guest gave an overview of his 15 years of research that included over 400 interviews with corporate managers, startup entrepreneurs and other individuals involved in corporate startup partnering. And in part one, he introduced some of the key players who paved the way for Microsoft, the gorilla, to learn to dance with startups. In part two, he dived into the why of partnerships. And today, we will answer the how. How to partner with startups systematically and how to build the capability to partner with startups in the first place. It is a great pleasure to welcome back the author of Gorillas Can Dance, Lessons from Microsoft and Other Corporations in Partnering with Startups, Shamin Prashantam. Welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Aidan. It's fantastic to have you back again. And I know you're Locked down again, unfortunately, in China, and you're managing it. And I appreciate your time managing this from home, Shamin, as well. Just so just to acknowledge that. So thank you on behalf of me and indeed, our audience and great to have you back. Oh, an absolute pleasure. Shamin, I thought I'd give a quick overview of what we've covered so far. We've discussed the challenges of partnering in the past. You tell us, though, when a startup is oriented toward collaboration, then it is likely to seek ways to overcome asymmetries that we discussed before with startups, then walk away from the exciting but challenging prospect of partnering with these very different organizations. What then, as you ask in the, in the book, is the solution to dealing with this, these asymmetries? You say your research has uncovered three stages of an, a process or an approach. One is to clarify synergies. Two is to create interfaces, and three is to cultivate exemplars. And before you share this with us, I just wanted to add here, I found this so similar for work within an organization, regardless of partnering with a startups that if you create some type of hero project in an organization, what you're going to share with us now is also the same way to vocalize this and share it throughout an organization. So I'm just putting that lens here through which our audience can experience what you're going to tell us about now this three stage process to partnering. Over to you, Shamin. Oh, Aidan, I'm so uh, glad to hear you say that. 
you know, that you see wider application for this framework. So, so that's great to hear. And um, what I'd also like to emphasize is I've been observing this phenomenon as an academic. Uh, so I don't have the sort of lived experience of corporate innovators working deeply in one organization. But what I have is the advantage of seeing multiple organizations and trying to look for a pattern. Therefore, uh, I think the value of this is this is not about one specific type of uh, engagement process, which some people may think works today and may not work tomorrow, like corporate accelerators, for example. Uh, some people think that's the way to go. Others think, oh, you know, it's time has passed. There are other ways to do it. And I think that's the value of practitioners talking about what they're doing. I suppose I'm trying to abstract from a bunch of observations what I see as the broad pattern. And I think this holds um, over time. Whatever the particular type of uh, engagement happens to be at a particular point in time, and now you say this is uh, applicable even in an internal context, which is great. So the three things that we were talking about correspond to each of the different asymmetries. So the asymmetries of the asymmetry of goals is basically the problem that the big company and the startup want different things and crucially at different time in different time frames as well. So the first broad uh, observation is the importance of clarifying the synergy. And that might seem blindingly obvious, uh, but sometimes it's just not clear, even though people talk about win-win, what exactly the win for either side is. And what I've observed is that there are two broad types of synergies. One is what I call building block synergies. And the companies that I think were the early entrants into this game of engaging with startups, the likes of Microsoft, basically were technology companies that had these building blocks that they wanted startups to build on top of, sell new solutions, and essentially was a bundling business model. Nothing complicated here. But being clear about this, that ultimately the goal is sort of co-sell, as opposed to the more traditional companies uh, that came into this game a little bit later, uh, I think were mainly driven by pain points. And so they were particularly due to the digital transformation that the industries were experiencing, recognizing that they needed new capabilities, new solutions. They didn't necessarily have these. And then were engaging with startups. So BMW comes to mind. They were getting into uh, connectivity, electrification, autonomous driving, and then had to deal with things like cybersecurity and we're, we're talking to startups to address these pain points. But I must point out, this is not simply about finding a vendor and getting an off-the-shelf solution. This was much more about a strategic partnership. So clarifying the synergy becomes important because then, and so, so in the latter case, it's more about selling to the corporation. And so now both sides are clear about, you know, here's the win-win. And then secondly, it's about creating interfaces, and this helps to address the structure asymmetry problem, um, which is that uh, it's very diff different, uh, difficult to find role counterparts. 
as you would when two large companies get together. And all kinds of interfaces have, have emerged over the past several years, but I find them uh, falling under two broad categories, cohorts and funnels. So uh, a typical example of a cohort would be a corporate accelerator, but it doesn't have to be strictly a corporate accelerator. The, the principle is more uh, that it's kind of what an MBA class is like, you know, getting into a program like that is difficult. But once you get in, uh, pretty much everybody who starts the program finishes it. It's time bound. There's a curriculum and peer interaction is very important. Uh, whereas the other broad type of interface, which I call the funnel, is like the job search process after the MBA. Uh, many fewer finish the process than start it. Uh, you get screened out along the way, and you may not even know who else is um, taking part. Uh, and you know you have companies from the same industries who have chosen to use uh, different approaches. So Microsoft went down the cohort approach, but SAP decided to use more of a funnel-based approach. In the automotive sector, Nissan's Infinity uh, brand used a cohort approach like Microsoft, whereas BMW had more of a funnel-based approach. Uh, so these, things, these interfaces have different pros and cons. I think a funnel is very good for predictable outcomes. Uh, the cohort has the benefit of potential serendipity, uh, you know, unexpected possibilities. And the third broad thing, um, the, the, the third broad step in the process is cultivating exemplars, success stories. And the point here is to do this intentionally and relatively early in the process. And this is about recognizing the need for a, a bit of handholding, for thinking as much as possible about what potential success might look like. And then when you're dealing with a bunch of startups, it becomes clearer as you go along because there's only so much you can work out theoretically in advance. Uh, and then uh, showcasing these success stories because holding up a success story helps both parties understand better what success can look like. It can help to set expectations more clearly going forward. Uh, it can help to attract high quality applicants from the startup side and also to um, deal with skeptical internal audiences within the company, which I think is in some cases the bigger challenge. I absolutely love it because it's, it echoes so much what happens in organizational change, as I mentioned earlier on, because if you think about you as an innovator, an entrepreneur within an organization, perhaps you've stumbled upon a nice co-creation project that you're creating with your customers, but you're going to have skeptics within your organization. And in the same way you talk about this, it's easier to sell success stories than it is to sell the idea. So if you can work on it and formulate it and have an MVP that's working and customers want, that's much easier to sell than the budding idea in the first place. And this is where I see this beautiful synergy between this work and also organizational change. And also, I loved the idea of the funnels and the cohorts, the serendipity you mentioned there. I thought about the serendipity almost equivalent to a blind date where you meet these startups and you stumble upon their ideas. And in there, there's a beautiful serendipity that could be a budding new idea within an organization and probably has more potential to be transformational rather than incremental change within an organization. 
But I'm going to go deeper because you say there's more to consider here, Shamin. You tell us there are design choices to consider when building these interfaces. You said we have to agree who is the target audience in the first place? How long is the engagement? And that was an important one that I had never considered before. And then three, which is important for both parties again, who owns the interface? Absolutely, yes. Um, and so the, these are choices that companies have to make. And sometimes they actually figure things out by trial and error. That, that uh, should be said as well. Uh, but, but the issue about the target audience is, you know, there are startups and there are startups. So even to decide, are we going to look at very early stage startups or somewhat mature startups is an important call to make. And, and again, there are pros and cons. Some companies have uh, evolved their approach over time. Uh, so Microsoft used to, I think, have a fairly open view on who they would talk to. And then over time, they realized they were more likely to add value to B2B startups that had some level of maturity. For example, they had a series A round of funding because then the odds were higher that they would have the kind of solution that could be co-sold to corporate clients. Whereas when I talked to uh, someone working for Bayer in Silicon Valley, he said, he wanted to talk to a startup before he read about it in Inc. magazine. Uh, and he said, by talking to a very early stage startup, we're more likely to influence what they're doing and make it uh, more suitable for our purposes or persuade them to align more closely with our strategy. So, so there are pros and cons, but understanding this clearly, I think, uh, is, is important. And then there's the duration of uh, interaction as well. Uh, and I, you know, you hear different views on this. Uh, there are some that want a very quick tango, you know, uh, to use the the, the dance metaphor. Uh, so some companies seem to be quite happy to do these very quick um, meets, a weekend, a week, that kind of thing. I mean, obviously, you can't accomplish a lot, but maybe that's one way to. Uh, have both parties understand each other a little bit and then pave the way for other engagement in the future. Uh, when Microsoft, I think, did its first major uh, close uh, engagement, which we talked about in the very first episode called BizPark One, which I find hardly anybody remembers, it was a 12-month engagement. Uh, more recently, uh, when I met uh, people at Weira, the uh, Telefonica Accelerator in London, they were saying they prefer nine months. They think it takes that long for a startup to really get to know people in the company. But with the accelerator programs, I would say three to four months is, is typical. But again, you know, you, you need to be clear about what you're trying to achieve and, uh, you know, therefore, how much time it, it will take. There are clearly uh, trade-offs involved. And then thirdly, you know, there needs to be a decision about where the interface sits within the organization, right? And there are choices uh, to be made. Um, and again, that I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all solution. When Infinity, um, the Nissan luxury brand, when they started their program, it sat within the brand marketing uh, side of things. Um, eventually, actually, it then moved 
Uh, and we come to that in a moment. But but that's where it started. And so the budget came out of brand marketing. And that was very different from the way another automotive company, BMW, did the startup garage. It was much more um, out of their R&D budget, much more innovation driven. And in the early days, when I was talking to both sides, you know, the language uh, was a little bit different. The things that they were focusing on uh, was a little bit different. Uh, but anyway, it's it's important to be clear where it sits, what the expectations of the sponsors are, the budget holders. But also, I think uh, over time, things might change as well. And, you know, where a, a, a interface starts its life within the organization may not be where it, it ends up, especially as it grows. And But we, we will get to that part as we delve further into the house. I pulled a quote that I thought was really interesting, and I'd love you to expand upon. So I'm going to quote a little bit here from the book, if you bear with me. You say, when the synergy is building block-based, the exemplar showcased would have effectively used the large corporation's platform technologies well and had a successful joint go-to-market outcome, such as Microsoft. If the synergy is pain point-based, then the exemplar would have successfully solved some problem of the corporation and likely had its solution successfully piloted. In this way, it can be demonstrated that the startup partnering process does in fact work, while at the same time providing insight into how to improve things. Importantly, corporations get a sense of what success looks like in their specific context and provides a basis for prioritizing and directing managerial attention to the sort of startups and then partnerships that will yield mutually enriching outcomes. I thought you articulated that brilliantly because this shows how and why it's the how this actually really works and how you can position it so effectively for the best possible outcome for both parties. And I think it then feeds back into the clarity we talked about that is needed uh, at the outset, you know, so um, it it has a mutually reinforcing benefit in that sense. Uh, And, you know, I think it also kind of ensures that people don't start getting greedy and trying to achieve too much, you know, because this, this is also part of the, the benefit, I think, of being clear about what you want to achieve. Because, you know, sometimes people think about, oh, let's just go talk to some startups as if it will solve all your problems. And it won't, uh, you know, uh, it can have particular benefits. But A, you need to be thinking about that at the outset. Uh, And then you need to be clear that it is indeed feasible. That's where the exemplars help. But I think it not only is it useful in terms of, you know, now here's some evidence and we we can move forward on the basis of that, which is extremely important. But it also has a sharpening of the saw effect, which is you then become, you know, you grow in your conviction of what is possible and you stick with that. I think that's also important too. And I just want to emphasize how valuable this book is as a resource for those organizations, those leaders out there who often see partnering with startups as some type of marketing campaign or some type of innovation theater. It has huge benefits because of the asymmetry, if you lean into the asymmetry, but also, again, to the point of today's show, if you position it right, the how is so, so important in this. And as you said there, it takes two to tango if people want to opt for the tango as a dance of choice. And Shamin, I, I chose 
this particular pin today to emphasize what we we're going to talk about today. It's a, a dancing person with a with a, a monkey. I didn't have a gorilla. <laughs> so, so, um, somebody dancing with a monkey, whatever, whatever meaning somebody wants to take from that one. But you say <laughs> there is a three step process here. Synergy interface exemplar process will only work when the managers involved take the trouble to also understand the startups perspective. This is also key. You cannot be selfish about this like you alluded to. You have to understand what's in it for them and enable what's in it for them. Therefore, your likelihood of success is going to be much, much higher. From the startup's point of view, uh, they are viewing this as a, as a relationship, as a partnership that's important for obtaining the resources that they need. So to go back to that definition of uh, Howard Stevenson, which he introduced when he started teaching about entrepreneurship at Harvard in the in the 1980s, he said, um, the st- you know, the starting point in entrepreneurship is the pursuit of uh, opportunity. But the implication is that the work of the entrepreneur is then to assemble the resources they need uh, to be able to do so. And we typically think of uh, two types of resources, capital and people, the team. Uh, but to increase the odds of getting this, another thing that startups do is they look for strategic partners. So that's where they're coming from. And that's where the gorillas fit in from the startup's point of view. So the startup is trying to form, consolidate, and ideally extend a relationship. And I think um, when big companies realize that this is going on, they can then see how important what they're doing in terms of synergy interface and exemplar is because the synergy they offer becomes the basis for the uh, forming of the relationship. Uh, The interface is what gives the startup the opportunity to consolidate the relationship. And if they're an exemplar, that's when it becomes more likely that the relationship will be extended. And that's a big part of what makes it attractive from the startup's point of view to engage with uh, the big company. That is, you know, they may initially have a relationship with, say, one business unit, but then there is scope to then extend it to other business units, or maybe the same business unit in other parts of the world or to other business units. And that's economies of scope from the point of view of the startup, and that can be uh, really valuable. The other thing I want to mention is that, um, as we discussed in the first episode, I had originally started writing from the perspective of the startup, and my initial piece was Dancing with Gorillas. I think one of the reasons why this term resonated with a lot of people is because it hints at the danger of doing so. You can get crushed, you can get trampled in the process. So the startup also is coming to this, of course, not only wanting uh, to achieve some uh, success and and access certain resources, but also perhaps is uh, concerned about how things may may pan out. And so again, from the, the big company's point of view, if they really are serious about wanting to partner with startups, they want to become seen as a partner of choice. And they are competing for the hearts and minds of the best startups. And so Seeing the startup's point of view, I think, also will make the gorilla want to be uh, as good a partner as it can be.
We talked before, Shamine, about the challenges of partnership, but also in partnering, there are risks. And you are no Pollyanna about this. You highlight these risks very clearly. One of them is that today's collaborator may be tomorrow's competitor. And this makes absolute sense. Like you said there, I help a startup, I scale them up, I use economies of scope to scale that organization, I am their top customer. And all of a sudden, they go, actually, we don't need you anymore. And they leave you. And you highlight a case study of this with Microsoft and the organization Huddle. This is a concern, I think, more often felt by the startup vis-a-vis the big company, which is they may now enter, our, get into our turf. And what was a complementary relationship can turn into a competitive one. Uh, so, so that concern is very often there on the part of the startup. But occasionally, the startup becomes the, the competitor. And so this was a very interesting example. Uh, you know, in fact, Huddle was a sort of a poster child of uh, the startup partnering program, uh, BizSpark One. But it ha- so happened that over time, they felt that what they were doing, um, you know, allowed them to compete with Microsoft. And uh, so this definitely wasn't what Microsoft had had hoped for. But I have to say that the folks at Microsoft at the time were you know, aware that startups have ambitions of their own. And so, you know, uh, that a startup may uh, not always be a close collaborator of the of the big companies, not what they want, but I think the uh, possibility of that is recognized. I think in this particular case, it became uh, especially conflictual because, you know, the, the competitive intent of the startup uh, was very explicit and and focused. Uh, you know that being said, it 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 uh, was a small minority of cases uh, that I've seen. So I don't uh, wouldn't think that this is a common occurrence, but it's one to be aware of. And in the end, I think companies need to take a call. You know, is the prospect of this happening going to put them off? partnering with startups completely? Or will they say, well, that's a risk worth taking? You know, one out of 100 may turn out this way. But, you know, I'm still quite happy if a decent number of the others turn out successful. Another thing that I've witnessed firsthand, and again, where your book will resonate so many with so much with practitioners, was when I started this show originally, Shamin, it was it had a segment where I included a startup every week. So I interviewed a startup purely to give them some experience in an interview, help them articulate their story, etc. And then I actually reinvented the show over time. But one of the things I found was at the time I worked in a large legacy organization, and large legacy organizations can become complacent. And they have, I would call it, atrophy, <laughs> atrophied mentally, where they don't have the same pressures that a startup have. And, and what I mean here is a startup may have financial pressures, they may need to answer to virtu- uh, to venture capitalists, to investors, etc. So you do not waste the startups time and many legacy organizations will go, Oh, why don't you give us a free trial of your product, etc. So you, you experience this and it's, it must be so frustrating for the startup. But on top of that, 
you have a, a glacial feedback loop. And this even happens for entrepreneurs within organizations who try to drive change, who may have some people who are key components in the chain, key links in the chain who delay feedback, or who actually want to sabotage feedback in the first place to actually destroy the project. And this happens for startups as well. And it reminded me of a magnificent quote, Shamin, that you may have heard from Stanley McChrystal, who was the general responsible for revolutioning the US Army, he had this quote about strategy, and the slow feedback loop, he said, the world has outpaced us. In the time it took us to move a play from creation to approval, the battlefield for which the plan had been devised would have changed. By the time it had been implemented, the plan, however ingenious in its f initial design, was often irrelevant. And I thought that absolutely spoke to the challenge you talk about here, which is this feedback loop, but also the financial pressures on the startup in the first place. Exactly. And um, this, in fact, goes back to the first of the three asymmetries, right? The asymmetry of goals. It's not only that they want different things, they need they want uh, to um, act at different speeds, you know. And, and in some cases, if a startup doesn't get an answer in a couple of weeks, they may die. Um, whereas the, the big companies not under that type of pressure. So um, I think you made an excellent observation earlier on about how when you think about your clients in a, in a company, it's often not even the division, it's the individual. So I think that's very important, you know, the people at the interface engaging with startups. If they themselves have entrepreneurial experience or otherwise deeply understand startups, you know, I think they work extra hard to cut out the bullshit, to be honest, to give very direct answers uh, to the startup. And I think that is extremely important and startups value that greatly. Also, one of the things I noticed with Walmart when they were uh, in, when they introduced the startup partnering program in China is that they were conscious of how fast these Chinese startups moved and that the prospect of dealing with a lumbering giant was um, not necessarily attractive, just, just that aspect of it. And so they said, whatever pilots you work for us have to be done within 60 days. And this was so reassuring to the startups because then they felt like, you know, this company really means business. Of course, it highlights another thread as well, which relates to the huddle problem is, if I'm over dependent on one customer, perhaps I'll shut down other avenues or other potential pivots for my startup as well, which often comes to mind. But I wanted to move on because one of the things you talk about here, and this is where I'm building capabilities for the organization for the future. So this doesn't become a one off event, it becomes a mindset or a way of being for the organization. One of the great tactics you talk about, which makes sense, and we see it for those people who go to college or maybe partake in an MBA program, like you mentioned, is there's an alumni program afterwards to keep them engaged, also keep them as first party contacts for future opportunities. This is also a way to make sure that the partnership with a startup doesn't just die on a vine, it becomes a, an echo within the organization to keep that mindset alive. Absolutely. And this is very important for that third aspect of this framework, which is 
creating exemplars. Because sometimes success comes after the formal engagement has concluded. And these, um, I mentioned Walmart engaging with startups in China. Actually, these were all um, alumni startups of the Microsoft program uh, that Microsoft had sort of uh, curated and presented to, to Walmart. And Microsoft is just delighted that these startups were getting the chance to get a marquee client and, of course, use Microsoft technologies in the process. Uh, and so keeping in touch with the alumni, I think, yes, that's absolutely important because the best outcomes of the partnership may actually lie ahead. And I wanted to go a bit deeper here because you highlight that understanding the synergy interface exemplar partnering process is, yes, very important, but much more needs to be done. You've almost just graduated onto the next level at this stage. And here you share how an organization can build and maintain the partnering muscle in the eventuality that the entrepreneur leading the partnering efforts moves into another role or even to another company, which is highly likely with the mindset of these types of entrepreneurs, they can grow tired quickly of success, as well as frustrated with the lack of progress. And here you tell us, for example, bearing in mind that we said Microsoft has developed strong partnering capabilities, even corporations with strong partnering capabilities in a general sense, need to work very hard to develop the competence to partner with startups. It is differing, it is much, much different than partnering with another gorilla. You're actually partnering with a different entity altogether. I think there are a couple of things here. One is what we've been talking about so far, the idea of the synergy interface and exemplar is taking into account the fact that you're dealing with asymmetries. So this ain't business as usual in terms of one big company dealing with another. But then there is this idea of now building the muscle, which is important because if you're serious about engaging with startups, then you can't afford for this to be a, a one-shot affair. You, you know, do this once or the person who's been championing this leaves and then you know, it's all uh, forgotten. And so this is about building capabilities. I, I think companies uh, routinely deal with this issue. And I think what's important is first of all, initiating, then expanding, uh, and then I think that the really critical piece is is systematizing. So uh, this is what uh, I would say is the second aspect of the how. The first is, okay, let's understand how we deal with these asymmetries, but then let's also figure out now how to internalize this as a capability. It reminds me, Shamin, of I, I practiced this with my clients, uh, an idea where you'd keep record of all attempts at innovation within an organization, because oftentimes it's just too early, or perhaps you had the wrong team or the wrong configuration to implement an idea in the first place. And I found this beautiful metaphor from the world of ants. And by the way, ants have been on the planet far longer than us, they've evolved so much more than us. And they're highly intelligent creatures, they're collaborative in an amazing way. And they have this amazing way to communicate, which they use pheromones, as you know, they use smell, that an area has already been explored. So an ant that goes and explores a new territory, leaves a pheromone that identifies and explains to other ants, I've checked this out, there's nothing here, or I've checked this out here, and it's dangerous, don't go down this path. 
And I thought that's exactly what you're doing here. You're leaving a trail in the organization of both success and also, as you said, to pivot and hone and to improve the process for later attempts at startup partnering as well. So the organization becomes much, much more capable. And I thought we'd consider at this stage, as a final kind of story, the magnificent case study you give in the book, because yes, Microsoft is mentioned, yes, you mentioned BMW and Nissan, you mentioned also SAP, but there's a magnificent case study of Bayer, a company that many of our listeners will know, because we did a similar multi part series with Ben Ben Sow on his book, built to innovate, where we explored the case study of Bayer in innovation. But we didn't talk about partnering with startups that you do here, because you take, you say that Bayer has taken partnering with startups extremely seriously started in 2013 as a self described passion project of a Bayer manager named Jesus de Valle. The initial focus was on providing small grants for development of digital applications that were relevant to healthcare, hence the name grant for apps or G4A. I'd love you to take us through this. I thought it was interesting a like what we talked about earlier on. Sometimes it's a person who starts to drive the change within an organization. In fact, it often starts with one person who then rallies a troop of people, and they drive change. And oftentimes, they're considered passion projects. And sometimes when you actually are the driver of a passion project, others will systematically try to sabotage you as well. But Jesus in this case, actually went on and had huge success with G4A. That's right. So you know, ph pharmaceutical companies figured out a long time ago that engaging with startups was a good idea, and they would engage with biotech startups. So even the Pfizer vaccine for COVID is the result of engaging with a biotech startup in Germany, right? But about a decade ago, they began to recognize the importance of dealing with digital tech startups. This was a new type of entity. Uh, and in this case, Hesus was basically trying to dabble with this idea that you could have these mobile phone apps that could be uh, relevant to uh, digital health. And, you know, it seemed like these young people knew a lot about this. So he said, well, let's give out a few grants to students for apps. And so it became grants for apps in 2012. But then I think it quickly became clear to him it didn't have to be students it could be startups. And then it pivoted to a startup partnering program. And they started with, I think, five in Germany. And then the year after that, they said, well, why does it have to be Germany? It could be from anywhere in the world. So they brought five startups from around the world to the Berlin offices of Bayer, kept them for 100 days, uh, engaged with them in this time. So this was a cohort type engagement. Uh, and then the following year, it was, well, why does it have to be in Germany only? And so it was launched in, in Barcelona and in a uh, couple of other European cities, I think, and in Shanghai, uh, which is when I started um, connecting with them. Uh, and then it expanded over time. And in fact, then had people in different parts of the world. And then by the time we get to, say, 2018 or so, it becomes clear that actually now this is a thing. Uh, this can this is of strategic importance to the company, 
and so this becomes then streamlined into three broad types of areas with three teams. And then somebody new takes over and drives this. So I think it's a very good illustration of initiation of expansion and then finally of systematization. So the purpose of each of these three um, phases is different. First of all, you need to get started. That's the, the purpose of initiation. But then to um, the expansion is important from the point of view of now getting buy-in from different people. So it's, it's fine to start things below the radar, to do uh, bottom-up approaches. But eventually, if this is going to continue to last in the organization and have some value, it needs to be uh, expanded. But also, there's an opportunity to improve things, to refine things, and, and that's also an important part of expansion. And then the purpose of the systematization is to make sure that there's close alignment with the strategic priorities of the company. But alongside the purpose, you need to recognize the people who are involved. So initially, it's fine for, for it to be a single person. In fact, I, I really see this as intrapreneurs who are pointing their companies to external entrepreneurs. Uh, but then when it comes to the expansion piece, then it's important to co-opt other supporters, at, you know, people who are at the upper echelons, people who are peers, people throughout the organization. Uh, and then the people who may end up running the show as it's systematized, though, may well be different from the ones who, who start, which is not unlike a startup where, you know, you don't always have founder CEOs. Uh, a few years into the expansion of the company. Uh, and then, of course, um, the process is, is also different in the way uh, we've just been describing. So I think that's a very important piece. And this was the beauty of uh, writing this book after a 15-year period, because it allowed me to not only compare different what different companies were doing and uh, distill the essence of it in terms of interface, uh, sorry, synergy interface and exemplar. So those were sort of the common features I found across different initiatives. But also the longitudinal perspective helped me to understand that sometimes what you see as a very effective uh, program, the origins were very humble. It involved somebody getting things off the ground, but that of itself wouldn't have allowed things to develop you know the the expansion process is very important too i'm so glad you said that about the both the longitudinal longitudinal fact of the study because that's what makes this book so unique but also what i love is the patterns that you spotted and then the patterns you spot spotted also echo many of the patterns i've spotted from reading these wonderful books behind me interviewing magnificent authors every week because they're the same patterns for example one of the things that came up on a show we did a couple of weeks ago with Micah Zenko, who works in the art of red teaming, which is the process of finding weaknesses in cybersecurity or in an organizational strategy, for example, is that the, the key type of person who makes a good red, red teamer is almost like what I would call a respectful rebel. They have a rebellious nature, 
but they are also what I said to you before in an earlier show. They're bilingual. They can talk and in a respectful manner to those people who are making decisions, but also make sense to them and also talk in a respectful manner and make sense to the startup as well. So they are talking in the language of the receiver of the message where they can understand it and can see the benefit in this partnership as well. I thought that was a key lesson that I took from this. And then the other lesson I took is that person is extremely unique and rare and hard to find. The DNA of that person, if you have them in your organization, prize them. <laughs> They're a prize asset within your organization as well. And Shamin, I thought I'd leave it with you to pay, maybe end today's show with your final message on the how before next week we talk about the where. Where do you set up your your innovation? Uh, where do you set up your partnering startup hub? Where do you set up your accelerator, etc.? And perhaps then ultimately we'll end on the ultimate purpose of you doing this work, which is for a higher good, which is to service the planet and look and try to solve some of these big, hairy, audacious goals that we have to mend the planet, undo some of the damage we've done and make it a better, more hospitable place for generations to come. So maybe you'll finish today's show with your final lessons on how to both the startup and to the legacy corporation? The important thing or in terms of the how uh, is to recognize that there is uh, two aspects to this, at least. One is figuring out what you need to do to deal with the challenge of asymmetry, the paradox of asymmetry that we've talked about. And then that uh, there is also a learning process uh, which is re required to internalize the, the capability. And uh, sort of a little bit foreshadowing what's to come later, I think what was clear with the Bayer example, the Microsoft example is for multinational companies in particular, as this capability is being internalized, the exciting thing is that there's scope to deploy this globally. Uh, and we will get into uh, the intricacies of that as we uh, Get in, when we do the next uh, episode. And then from the startup's point of view, for them, they are trying to leverage this large, multi-unit, spatially dispersed um, entity. And as they develop their own capacity to um, form, consolidate, and extend the relationship, actually one of the interesting outcomes potentially is they can internationalize in the process too. So one of the interesting um, uh, startups that I heard about from Bayer, actually. So at one point, I was invited to a meeting just to sit in as an observer. There were people from uh, China, South Korea, and Japan exchanging notes on how they were engaging with startups. And the South Korean representative basically used up the majority of his time to talk about an exemplar, the first exemplar that they had. Uh, a very successful start. I mean, they had a very successful partnership in Korea. And then the Korean uh, subsidiary of Bayer introduced the startup to Berlin, and then they became part of the global uh, partnering program. And so you could see that this, that this Korean startup was now building their own international networks and potentially internationalizing um, in the process. I also think it's important to, to recognize, though, that 
what we're saying is that all of this can take time. It's effortful, not effortless. And not everything that one attempts works out. Uh, but then as long as there is this commitment to learn and to improve the process, then pretty much nothing becomes a waste. Um, however, uh, the company needs to be committed uh, and the individuals who are driving this need to bring others on board. And, uh, you know, and, and, and one of the consequences of this, of course, can be that the interface then gets valuable air cover from senior leadership. And sometimes an interface that began in the marketing department may actually end up in the CEO's digital transformation office uh, and have more protection there and have a better chance of lasting. The point in the end is that big companies need to constantly innovate. They need to be entrepreneurial. One useful way of doing this is by engaging with startups. But if you're serious about this, then there's a big commitment that's uh, uh, involved. You are, after all, dealing with startups, uh, which can be very vulnerable. It would be irresponsible not to be uh, committed and serious, but for the company's own benefit to be able to truly harness the value of this, because otherwise you end up with the innovation theater that we've mentioned that uh, many of your other uh, guests have talked about. Uh, and, and that's so, so all of this in a way, it's about ensuring that we don't end up with the innovation theater, but end up with genuine, meaningful partnerships. A wonderful way to close today's show, author of Gorillas Can Dance, Lessons from Microsoft and Other Corporations in Partnering with Startups, Shamin Prashantam, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Aid. And that's it for part three of Gorillas Can Dance with Shamin Prashantam, an awesome experience so far. Don't forget, you can win a copy of this book by signing up to the innovationshow.io newsletter, and you will be in the hat to win a copy of this magnificent book. Thanks also to our partner, Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services, empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. And I'll see you very soon for part four of Gorillas Can Dance.